Our scripture reading this afternoon is from the book of Luke, chapters 3 and 4. It can be found on page 11 in your bulletin, and it will also be projected behind me. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Okay, kids, I, uh, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin that's in that worship bag. There is a, a spot on there for you to jot down three things to listen for. Here they are. First is 9-11. Uh, secondly, divine superpowers. And then thirdly, Star Wars. So 9-11, divine superpowers, Star Wars. With that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is absolutely true and that you've given it to us because you, you love us. Father, we thank you that it is of more value than gold, even much fine gold, and that it is sweeter than honey. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, we would find that to be the case today, and that you would open our eyes, that we would behold your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Uh, a number of years ago, I uh, listened to an audio version of a book that was called The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11. Uh, it was a fantastic book. The author, uh, his name is uh, Garrett Graff. And uh, what he did is he, he took three years and he compiled all of these first-person accounts of over 500 people about their own personal experiences uh, of that day. And uh, one of the reasons that the, uh, the audiobook is so good is that it brings to life uh, the, these accounts in ways that just reading the words on a page might not. Um, and so there were all kinds of times, a uh, number of times in this, when I'm listening to it, I was running or driving, and I would get totally choked up. And so chances are, like, I could have been the guy next to you at the stoplight crying in his car while listening to this. And uh, the accounts uh, of the, the, the devastation 
uh, the, the loved ones lost or, the, 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 or presumed lost and then ultimately reunited will wreck you emotionally. Here's the thing, though, that, that actually got me the most. Um, they were the accounts of the first responders going into those burning buildings or running in the, in the opposite direction of everybody else evacuating. And, and so they, they did all of that, of course, knowing that they probably weren't going to make it out. And so what was incredible is that there were these accounts of what the, the, the leaders or the, the commanders said to their officers or to the firefighters before going in. Here are some of them. Before we got out of the car, we all held hands and we said, we're going in together and we're going to come out together. Another said this. I huddled the guys together because I knew this was going to be a tough day. I got into a little huddle like football players do and I says, come here. Just treat this like a fire. We'll stick together, watch each other's back. They're trying to kill us, boys, so let's go. And they did, to their credit. I don't think anybody would look down on them if they ran up West Street. And part of what was so moving and so amazing about that was that these were the words that were spoken to them right before they went into something that was unimaginably difficult and evil. And, and the thing is, is that some of those words that were said beforehand made a huge difference in how they went into those places. And uh, the, the reason that I mention that is because that's actually some of what we get in this passage. So we looked last week specifically at, at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptized by John. The Spirit descends on him, but then he hears these words that are spoken by his Father. You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. And then in, in Luke, if you've got your Bible open, you'll see uh, he, he puts the genealogy um, right in that place. I didn't ask John to read this because I, I love him and I want good things for him. Uh, but right after that, I mean, in terms of the, the narrative, right after the baptism, Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness. And he faces this unimaginable difficult situation of the, the evil one tempting him. And the thing is, is that those words that he had just heard from his father, that, that this intimate word of affection, this affirmation of his sonship is actually the exact place that the evil one attacks him. So twice, uh, verses three and verse nine, the, the devil begins his temptation like this, if you are the son of God. And, and part of why I included the, the beginning and ending of the genealogy is that, that it also connects with this theme of Jesus as the true son of God. And it's actually part of why uh, in Luke's genealogy, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God, the first son of God. And so what Satan's trying to do here is he's trying to get Jesus to, as one author puts it, distrust, forsake, or misuse his sonship. But, but what I want you to see here is how Jesus fights the lies and deception of the evil one. He, he clings to the words of his father. He clings to those words that he's just heard spoken over them, but he also clings to, to the whole words of Scripture itself. And part of why that's so important for us to see today is that that is exactly what we have got to do in the face of temptation. We fight temptation by clinging to the Word of God. And so I, I want to look at this uh, under three headings today. Uh, first, the, the, the context of Jesus' temptation. Secondly, the content of his temptation, and then thirdly, the conclusion. So context, content, and conclusion. Those three headings are actually not original to me. They're from uh, some pastors at Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Um, I wanna give credit, especially for the killer alliteration, which I deeply appreciate, of course. 
Uh, so first, uh, the, the, the context of Jesus' temptation. Look back to verse one. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So a few things to see here. Um, Luke really wants us to see first that Jesus is filled by the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit. And so we talked some about this last week, but part of the importance in Jesus' baptism of the Spirit descending on Jesus is that it marked him out as the Messiah, this long hoped for Messiah, and also as the servant of God who has now been filled with the Spirit to carry out the work that the Father's given him to do. And so Luke is again highlighting that, underlining that for us here as he enters into temptation. That's gonna be really important. That's the first thing to see. Secondly, Jesus has been fasting. And he's been fasting for a really long time. And Luke adds this little aside. I actually think this is pretty funny. Uh, Middle of verse two. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. (laughs) You think like, yeah, I probably would be really hungry too after something like that. Here's part of why this matters though. Luke wants us to know that in addition to being fully God, Jesus was also fully human. Because he was fully human, he really did experience temptation. And here's why this is so important. I think it can be really easy when we come to a passage like this to read it and go like, well, yeah, like of course Jesus overcame temptation, right? Like he was God, right? And there is some truth to that. Here's the thing though. As a man, he experienced every bit of temptation that you and I would have been facing in that exact moment. In other words, uh, these temptations are not like pretend temptations. And so uh, Rankin Wilburn uses this great phrase. uh, This is actually a quote in your bulletin. That they were tempted to think that Jesus just used his divine superpowers to overcome this temptation as if it wasn't really that tempting to him or it wasn't really that difficult for him. The thing about that is that's not true. He experienced every bit of this temptation as a man. And and, and part of what that means is that Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to face temptation. And and this is one of the things that that the author of of the book of Hebrews points out. And he says that Jesus can actually sympathize with you when you face temptation that you have a savior who knows exactly what it feels like to be tempted and tried in every way. He gets it. He sympathizes with you. That's the the second thing to see. Here's the last really important thing to see. It's that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And so uh, when you read about the wilderness in the Bible, it's usually this place of, of trial and temptation. And what this does is it taps into a couple of different echoes that are a broader part of the scriptures that might not be as obvious to us. This definitely would have been clear to the original audience. One is the one I've already mentioned. It's the temptation of Adam in the garden. And so we read about this in our Old Testament lesson. And so this connection between Adam and Jesus is part of why he puts the genealogy where he does. Luke wants you to remember that Jesus is descended from Adam, this first son of God. And the temptation that he faced from Satan in the garden in that original temptation. That's one echo. Uh, The second is even more obvious. So if we were first century Jewish people and we were hearing this read and hearing of this account of this person who's in the wilderness, who's been in the wilderness, tempted for 40 days, then we would have immediately thought of Israel's story of Israel being in the wilderness, not just for 40 days, but actually for 40 years. So a little bit of background. 
Israel had been in captivity for 430 years in Egypt. They were finally set free. The Lord delivered them out of that slavery and bondage, but then they're in the wilderness for 40 years. And what happens there is they face temptation as well. The temptation here is a little bit different because they're not facing this, this direct encounter with Satan. Their temptation was to believe that God couldn't be trusted, that God wouldn't provide for them, that God couldn't protect them. And so what you read about over and over again in the wilderness is that they grumbled and they complained against him. And eventually things get so bad that while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, they melt down all the gold and they actually uh, construct uh, th this golden calf when they literally bow down to it and worship it in Exodus 32. But here's the thing, uh, that, that this is actually where you see the similarity among all three of these temptations, and it's this. It's the temptation to believe that God isn't actually good. It's the temptation to believe that he's withholding something good from you. And that the only explanation for that, the only possible reason for that, is because he doesn't really love you. And so um, Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this so beautifully in the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is also in your bulletin if you want to follow along. She says this. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all. And you'll be happier than you could ever dream. And here's why this is so important for us to see. That's actually what's underneath every temptation that we face. It's that temptation to doubt that God really is good to you. The temptation to doubt that God really does love you. Here's the thing. Luke doesn't just want us to see the similarity to these two temptations. He really wants you to see the difference. And the difference is in the way that Jesus responds. And ultimately... It's the way that Jesus succeeds where Adam and Israel both failed. And so that, that's the context of this temptation. He's setting us up here, though, to see how is Jesus going to respond to these temptations. So secondly, the content of Jesus' temptation. So temptation number one, look back to verse three. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So this is probably the, the most straightforward uh, of the three of these temptations. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and he's incredibly hungry. And so the devil says, look, if you're the son of God, then you've got all the power in the world, right? You can do anything that you want right now and you can have it right now. So why not just go ahead and turn that stone into bread? And so it's pretty obvious here what's happening on the surface. Uh, here's what I want to look at some. What's really going on in this temptation? What's the heart of this temptation? And I think there are a couple things. One is this. It's to misuse his power as the son of God. So could Jesus have done exactly what the devil said? Was he able to do that, to turn that stone into bread? Absolutely. But, but, but here's the problem. 
To do so would be to fail to trust in God's provision for him. And you see that in in Jesus' response. So he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and he says this, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the, uh, the, the context of Deuteronomy 8 is actually really helpful here. It's where Moses is recounting the way that God had provided manna for Israel in the wilderness. And part of the point there was for them to see that God is actually the one who is the true source of all life. That he's the one that, that they've got to learn to trust. And that's really the heart of this temptation. Jesus could do one of two things. He could either entrust himself to his father and believe that his father really does love him and that his father really would provide for him. Or he could take matters into his own hands and and he could use his power to do whatever he wants to get what he wants immediately. Okay, so uh, what does this look like for us? So obviously there are some differences here, right? Like we don't have the power to turn stones into bread. Here's the deal though. There are all kinds of ways where we face this temptation to grasp at things that God has said no to. To grasp at those things rather than to wait on him and to trust that the, the, what he commands is actually good for us and is always for our good. So let me just give one example of this. So God says that, that sex is a good gift that he's given to us and that it's this gift that, that's to be enjoyed in the context of the marriage between a man and a woman. And and here's the thing about that. It can be so easy to think like, gosh, that is so, so tough. It is so hard to believe that that, that God is not just arbitrarily saying, don't do this because it would be really great to do. And so here's the the, the question that we ask in that moment. We're asking ourselves, "Can, can I trust God that what he is saying here is really what is best for me? that it really is ultimately for my good to, to not do this particular thing. See, that, that's what the heart of this first temptation is. It's asking that question, can I trust God to be good to me? That's the first temptation. What's the second? So the devil takes him to this place where, where he can see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. So this is almost like a, some sort of vision that, that the devil is providing for Jesus here. And he says this in verse six, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Okay, what's the catch? Verse seven. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And so he's offering Jesus all the authority in heaven and earth, and he's offering him all of the glory that comes with that. And so here's the the, the really interesting thing about this temptation. One day, Jesus would be given all authority in heaven and on earth. One day he would receive all of the glory in this world. Here's the thing though, it wouldn't come from the devil. And maybe even more importantly, it wouldn't come in this way. See, Jesus wouldn't be given those things by the Father until after his death and resurrection. And that's what this temptation really is. It's the temptation for Jesus to receive all of this glory without enduring the suffering of the cross. And so what the devil's doing here is he's trying to tell him that, hey, there's an easier way. You don't have to walk this path to Jerusalem and to suffer on behalf of your people. I can give it to you right now with no suffering at all. And so Jesus refuses. And he quotes Deuteronomy again, verse eight. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And I think this temptation of the three uh, is a great picture 
of the allure of idols. So what, what is an idol? Well, is it, when you hear that word, you probably first think of like some maybe little stone figurines or something that you might set up. You're bowing down to them, that kind of worship. Or maybe you're thinking about that golden calf in Exodus 32, this literal idol. Those are idols, but idolatry is much bigger and much broader, and if I put it this way, much deeper than that. An idol is any created thing that we take and we raise it up to an ultimate level. It's something that we take and we begin looking to that thing to give to us what God alone can give. And the thing about idols is that they almost always are really good things. It could be your work or marriage or relationship or comfort or money, or happiness, or sex, all of these good things that we then take and we begin looking to them to provide what only God can. And here's how they, they connect specifically here to this passage. Every single one of those things promises that they will give you something in exchange for your devotion. And one of the, the many problems with those idols is that they can never deliver on what they promise. They are empty, false promises. And, and Tim Keller has this great phrase that they are all, in the end, counterfeit gods. And so Jesus, again, he sees this temptation for what it is, and he refuses to believe that lie. What he does instead is he entrusts himself to his father. And he entrusts himself to his father knowing the journey, this path that he's about to walk all the way to the cross. Third and final temptation then is in verse nine. So if you look back there, you'll see this. The devil takes him uh, then to Jerusalem. He says he, he uh, takes him there. He sets him on the, the highest part of this temple and he says this. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Here's the kicker about this one though. Um, Satan actually pulls in some scripture to try to bolster his case. And so he pulls two lines from Psalm 91. He says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so it's almost like he's saying, look, Jesus, I see that you have quoted scripture back to me in these others. And I actually see too that you trust God. So here's my question for you. Why don't you prove it? He says he's gonna do this. Why aren't you gonna go ahead and just show that he's able to do that? And here's the thing about this. Once again, could God have done that? Could he rescue Jesus from that? Of course he could. That's not what this is about. The temptation here is for Jesus to become almost some kind of flashy wonder worker rather than the Messiah who's gonna be obedient to his father all the way to the end. That's what he came to do, not to do something in some flashy way to get the attention of the crowds. And so Jesus here again responds from Deuteronomy. This is from uh, chapter six, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I, I think one of the, the, the really important things to see about this last temptation is the way that the devil uses scripture. He twists and misuses it. And that's not a new tactic, of course. This is exactly what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He twists it. He casts just a little bit of doubt on it, and then sometimes he will flat out contradict it. But you see that Jesus sees right through it. And I, uh, I've intentionally not said much about Jesus' response in each of these, and it's because, uh, really, I, I want to make one pretty obvious point about all three. In the face of temptation, what Jesus does 
is he clings to God's word. Or what you see here is, is, is someone whose life is so saturated with scripture that he sees through every one of these lies, that, that, that he sees the, the false promises of those sins and the way in which Satan's trying to deceive him through the misuse of God's word. And the only way that that's possible is that he's viewing every bit of this through the lens of the word of God. And so one really legitimate application of this passage is that in order to fight temptation, we have got to know God's word. And not just know it, we've actually got to cling to God's word. And, and here's the thing, like if you and I looked to, if, I, if you and I took that to heart, and we really immersed ourselves in scripture, then it really would be transformative. Here's the thing about that though. That's actually not enough. Knowing the Bible backwards and forwards while incredibly helpful and something that all of us should strive for, that is ultimately not enough to keep you from sin. Now, why, why do I say that? Well, let me give an example of somebody else who knows scripture backwards and forwards better than you and I do. That is the devil himself. And so if just knowing the word of God isn't sufficient, then what is? Let me put it this way. It's knowing the God of the word. What you and I need more than just knowledge, what you and I need more than just knowledge of God's word, what we actually ultimately need is a redeemer. We need one who can actually forgive us for the penalty of our sin. We need one who, who can actually break the power of these sins in our own hearts and lives that feel like they have a stranglehold over us. And what we really need is we need the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to enable us to actually fight the sin and temptation because on our own, we will lose 100% of the time. And the, the beautiful thing about this is that that is exactly what we have in Jesus. And you see this in the final verse of this passage. So thirdly, and finally, the conclusion of Jesus' temptation. So, so Jesus defeats Satan every single time in this passage. And as he does that, what, what he shows is that he is this new Adam who has succeeded where the first Adam failed. That he's the, the, the new Israel who remained faithful where the first Israel had been unfaithful. But look how this passage ends. Verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that has a really ominous tone about it. So uh, kids, uh, that, that last phrase is sort of like the, uh, it's like the end of a Star Wars movie where the battle from that particular movie is won. But at the same time, you know that the war isn't over yet. And, and, and that's what's happened here. Because Jesus wins this battle against Satan right here, but there's still another even greater battle that was yet to come. And that battle that was coming is gonna be the battle that decides the war. Here's the thing about that battle. Jesus' victory there actually looked like utter defeat. Because the way he fought that battle was to actually give himself over to the power of sin and death and evil. But here's the thing though, in a way that nobody expected, not his disciples, not anybody that saw it, he would overcome and come out victorious through his resurrection from the dead. 
And so what does that mean for us then? If we're talking about fighting temptation, how does that apply to us? It means this, that Jesus isn't just your example in how to fight temptation. He's also your substitute because he's the one who obeyed where you rebelled. He's the one who remained faithful where you've been unfaithful. He's the one who who paid the penalty of your sin by his death and he has broken the power of that sin in your life by his resurrection. And so how do we fight sin and temptation? It's by clinging to the true word of God. That word who became flesh, who died in your place and who was raised in glory. And it's that word who offers himself to you, the only one who can redeem us from that fight against temptation that we would lose every single time otherwise. He's the one who offers himself to you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your son. We thank you, Lord, that he is the all-sufficient redeemer who has done everything necessary to accomplish our salvation. We thank you that he has succeeded at every point where we have failed over and over again. And we thank you, Lord, that in him we have redemption and that in him, because of our union with him, we actually have the resources to fight sin in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit we would do that and that we would trust you as our Father who is good, who loves us, and who will sustain us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.